Are you mute? The line does sound better. I was hoping that echo would go away. Hearing me back at once is bad enough, but two or three times at once really could be a problem. But uh, I didn't detect it just now in John's voice, so perhaps after the mute occurred, things became better. My last sermon, I got into the first four chapters of the book of Micah. I had preceded that with an introduction to the book showing that Micah was written with the idea in mind that the Assyrian would be coming upon our land very shortly. And he details the sins of Israel here as to why that breaker is coming on the land. But we also saw that these scriptures apply as well to the church because God indicts the church first. He scatters the church first, as we are well experiencing at the moment, before he begins to scatter the nation. So he expects the church to remedy her problems because we are to be the first fruits and we are to be the leaders in the world tomorrow of physical Israel. And if we have not resolved our problems and become a part of the first fruits and the bride of Christ, then we are of no value to the nations as a whole. So this is first to us and then later to the nation. Now last week we addressed this in showing that uh, Samaria and Jerusalem were the capitals of both uh, the northern ten tribes of Israel as well as Jerusalem then being the capital of Judah, Levi, and Benjamin. So the two divisions there, and when he speaks from a spiritual standpoint or a church standpoint, when he says Samaria and Jerusalem, he's including the whole church, all of spiritual Israel, not just part of it. So Micah does address it, and he talks here in verses 5 and 6 about knocking it flat, knocking the stones down, discovering the foundations, and I think it should become incre increasingly clear to us that that is what is happening spiritually to the church right now. He says in verse 9, her wound is incurable, it's come to Judah. Those who split off from worldwide, I believe, represent Judah in a spiritual sense if we apply these prophecies to the church. Uh, chapter 2, verse 13, after he details some of our sins and tells, says that those who prophesy are told not to prophesy uh, because people don't want to hear this, and some of these things are not fun to hear. But they're back here for us to consider Verse 13, he says, The breaker has come up before them. They have broken up and passed through the gate. The breaker has come on the church, and the breaker is about to come on the nation. And even as we consider this, the vanguard of problems has gone to Europe, where we have the United States, NATO, Germany, Russia, going round and round there doing a tap dance through Kosovo. So it seems that the theater of concern is moving back and forth now from the Middle East to Europe, two very, very critical areas that are to be considered in prophecy and the ultimate destruction of the United States and Great Britain and Israel as a whole. So this is becoming more and more imminent as we go along. Now one other thing I wanted to notice here, we got into chapter 4 in the last days at the end of this age, in other words, and I think we're in the last days, he puts out a plea to us 
Now, it applies in the millennium, but I believe that it applies right now to the church. Verse 3, And he shall judge among many people, and rebuke strong peoples afar off. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, and one people shall not lift up a sword against another people, neither shall they learn war anymore. He says in the latter temple in Haggai that in this place he will bring peace. And there has not always been peace in the church, and this isn't spoken just to the physical nations of Israel and the ultimate peace of the millennium. Remember the book of James, where he spoke to the church and said, Why do you have wars and fightings among you? And then he explains the cause and effect of wars and fighting among God's people. So we need to think seriously about that as we approach the last half of this chapter, that we have to have right attitudes one to another because there is certainly a great deal of war and fighting between organizations, between peoples, even in families and God's church, over doctrine, over focus, over all manner of things that have come up on the spiritual level. Now moving on down to verse 6, In that day, says the Lord, will I assemble her that halts, and I will gather her that is driven out, and her that I have afflicted. We've seen in the last period of time that we've gone through these scriptures that God is the one who afflicted the church. He's the one who has done the scattering. We're going to see that just a little bit more again in a moment uh, in relationship to part of this. So he is the one who has caused this affliction to come on us. We caused it by our sins. Uh, he allowed the devil to get in and scatter us, but he is behind it all. And I will make her that halted, and the church has been halted and crippled lately. I will make her a remnant, and her that was cast far off a strong people. And the Lord shall reign over them in Mount Zion from henceforth even forever. And I will say at this point that certainly this carries over into the millennium. But he is going now to specifically address not the physical nations of Israel, but the church itself. He has got to start something now. He already started something in this end time era through Herbert Armstrong, calling a great number of people from whom to choose a remnant people that he will use against this world. And we will use this sermon to show a great deal of that. Now, I want to read down through verse 8 through 13 so that you have it in mind because we're going to go to several other scriptures to show some points here. But let's understand the context of what we're going to go through here and see if we can make some sense of it then. Beginning in verse 8, And you, O tower of the flock, the stronghold of the daughter of Zion, unto you shall it come, even the first dominion, the kingdom shall come to the daughter of Jerusalem. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. I think this is a pretty good description of the church right now. Be in pain, he says, and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, for now shall you go forth out of the city, and you shall dwell in the field, and you shall go even to Babylon. Strange-sounding verse there. Why go to Babylon? Everything else says leave Babylon. There shall you be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. 
Now also many peoples are gathered against you. We're speaking still of the daughter of Zion. That say, let her be defiled, and let our eye look down upon Zion. But they know not the thoughts of the Lord, neither understand they his counsel, for he shall gather them as sheaves into the floor, these people who look askance at the daughter of Zion. Now here is a curious thing that I think we perhaps have not fully considered in the past. Maybe we sort of understood it. Arise and thresh, O daughter of Zion. For I will make your hot horn iron, and I will make your hooves brass, and you shall beat in pieces many people, and I will consecrate their gain, their wealth, their substance to the Lord. Well, then he says, and their substance to the Lord of the whole earth. Now, there's a lot in there that would seem to be hard to understand, just to read through. What does all this mean? All right. To begin, let's ask the question, when? Because the timing is critical here. There are places in here that sound like the millennium, uh, and yet there are other things in here which don't sound like that at all. And maybe he sort of goes back and forth to some degree, but bear in mind that he's speaking first to the church, later to the nation. And that therefore some of these things have to be fulfilled in one fashion before they're fulfilled in another fashion. God has written it here a little and there a little that they might be taken and snared and confused. But we should be walking in light and should be beginning to understand some of these scriptures because they have a very great deal to do with us, as we shall see. Now when? We already touched on chapter 4, verse 1, but in the last days. Not after the last days, not after the end of the age, but in the last days. Before this all is finished. Now, what does it say in verse 9? Now, why do you cry aloud? Verse 11, Now also many nations are gathered. Uh, verse 10, Now shall you go forth out of the city. What does now mean? See, this book was written long before Christ was ever born on the earth. And it's been 2,000 years since he was born. And many generations have read the book of Micah. And it's said now throughout all those thousands of years. Well, now, what does now mean? All right, let's continue a little bit. Verse 9. Now, why do you cry out aloud? Is there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? For pangs have taken you as a woman in travail. Aha! Now we have conditions which will prevail at a time when now applies. Now, for the church today, we are in exactly this position. We have no king. Herbert Armstrong died. Our counselor, our spiritual advisor, has perished. And we labor. And we are in pain. And we're having, giving, having trouble giving birth. We'll discuss birth a little bit later on. All right, let's understand a little bit more about the now. Chapter 5, verse 5. And this man shall be the peace when the Assyrian shall come into our land. Verse uh, 6, the last half. Thus shall he deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and when he treads within our borders. So 
Micah is talking about the time when we are living under the threat of the Assyrian coming into our land. Herbert Armstrong began to tell us about this right after World War II. And we've lived with the knowledge that this would someday occur over our heads this whole time. Now as world events have moved forward since the late 40s, we now see Europe rising, uh, drawing together, unifying, and we see a battle going on for the Balkans, which is something that Germans usually try to get the back door closed before they attack the West. They made a mistake in World War II and didn't have the Balkans under control, and the Russians came through the back door. They want to resolve that problem ahead of time right now, and the Germans have been one of the main pushers of what happened in Kosovo. The Serbs were on our side at that time in World War II. So anyway, I think we all recognize we're near the end of the age, and I don't have to go through and prove the Assyrian and how they are going to be the ones who lead the beast against Israel. Uh, that has happened in the past, and it is about to happen again. So we find ourselves without leadership in the church, essentially, every man leaning to his own understanding. We have a situation where every breach of doctrine, every breach of attitude caused the cattle to run out the breaches, as Amos says. Every bar that got knocked down doctrinally, a few more people left. So now we have people out here milling around, not in one herd like we had at one time under Herbert Armstrong, but we have twos and threes and fives and tens and two hundreds and a few thousands and so on. The gate's down, the holes are in the corral, or the wall as he puts it, and the cattle all run out. <coughs> so now they're scattered. That's the situation we find ourselves in. So now, to me, indicates, no. It didn't 500 years ago in quite the same way, because the end-time prophecy was not quite here yet, and we did not face the Assyrian coming and the United States falling within, what, another year, two, three, five, ten, whatever it is, I don't know. Timing uh, is scary to even try, but the general timing is here. So what this prophecy is referring to is this period of time that we're in, in the church right now, and what God, what kind of disposition he's going to make of it. So when it says now, I think it means right now in the next few months and years, however long that turns out to be. And he tells us an awful lot in here about what to be doing right now. When we find ourselves in this predicament without leadership, without king, without counselor, what do we do? All right, let's go into this beginning then <coughs> in verse 8. It says, And you, O tower of the flock. Now, this is an interesting expression. I looked it up in a couple of commentaries. And the commentaries, this one is from Barnes, says that this is the Tower of Adar, which is interpreted Tower of the Flock, and it's about a mile out of Bethlehem, not very far from Bethlehem. And it talks about the shepherds in the field at the birth of our Lord, is the way he phrases it. There Jacob said, keeping watch over their flocks by night, and further, that the Jews inferred from this place that the Messiah should be revealed. Barnes says this is the place where in the last days Messiah shall be revealed. So he's talking about the remnant here from verse 7, 
and he talks about power of the flock. This gets very interesting, and it tells us a little bit, I think, or quite a little bit, really, about what the work is today. I want to go back for a moment here to the Song of Songs. This is a little bit of a, uh, a side issue, but it ties in very carefully, really, with what we're talking about. Song of Songs, chapter 1. Uh, the Song of Songs, I believe, is very much a story not only of human beings getting married, and some think that's all the meaning there is to it, but I believe that there is a very, very def definite prophetic meant to this between Christ and his bride, the church. Now, she says she hasn't taken very good care of herself uh, just before verse 7, and we can look at ourselves and say, well, we haven't been being what we ought to be, uh, but do we look too bad? We want to present ourselves to Christ in the best light we can, but we understand we still have problems. But verse 7, Tell me, O you whom my soul loves, where you feed, where you make your flock to rest at noon. For why should I be as one that turns aside by the flocks of your companions? I want to find you. They want some other God. They want some other husband or suitor. I want you. Then he answers her, If you know not, O you fairest among women. Now we shall see that he is going to choose one daughter or one woman that he is going to work through to put the church back together. So that is the one he addresses here. The fairest among women. Read Proverbs 31. Apply it to the church. It says this daughter excels them all. Go your way forth. Where should we go now? If we're having trouble finding Christ and knowing what Christ is doing, first of all, we know he'll be with the sheep. He will be with the flock. He will be taking care of his sheep. That's number one. Go your way forth by the footsteps of the flock and feed your kids behind the, beside the shepherd's tents. So Christ is going to have very, very much to do as his bride is being prepared with feeding the sheep. That's what he told, told Peter three times to do. That was the emphasis. Think about David's life a little bit. Where was David when it came time to unify Israel? He was out minding the sheepies. That was his job. That's what his job had always been. And they said, well, come forward. Finally, when they recognized none of the other sons could do it, but this one son could do it come forward, let's anoint you king of Israel. Well, what happened in David's life then? He got into all kinds of troubles and went up against the world and fought all kinds of battles. And he got his mind off of what God really wanted done, and that was the unifying of Israel. And in his sins, he finally came to a place of repentance and turned his attention away from the world, from mining copper in Lake Superior, from uh, bringing apes from uh, Asia and, and gold from here and there as his son Solomon later did as well there are stories that David had ships going all over the world too his attention was not as much on God there for a while as it should have been or God's people Israel it was on making war and numbering horses and fighting enemies but then he repented very deeply Psalm 51 what did he say after his heart was cleansed, after his mind was made clear, he said, Now I will teach the sinner your ways and convert 
them to your paths. He got his attention back on the flock of God. I think that should tell us a great deal right now when we see the flock scattered, when we see the world out there. Should our attention be on the world right now and dealing with the world? Or should our attention be where Christ's attention is? He says, Fairest of women, if you want to find me, go to the flock. Go to the shepherd. There is where I will be working. And I think it's interesting here that this tower of the flock, they tie in with near Bethlehem. Where did Christ begin? He began, was born in a very, very small area. Not in Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem. Out in the boondocks. And I think it is an interesting comment that he says, this is the place where in the last days Messiah shall be revealed. Because if we go back now to Micah, 4 and verse 8 and you O tower of the flock they built towers in the vineyard to keep the foxes out of the grapes so God has set a tower above the flock or will set a tower above the flock a watchman to watch out for the church of God the stronghold of the daughter of Zion so there's going to be a stronghold a tower set over Zion Unto you shall it come even the first dominion. Now our dominion as kings and priests in the world tomorrow will last forever and ever. We'll be kings and priests there. But he's talking here, I believe before that, to the church specifically, saying that the first dominion is going to come to the daughter of Zion. That he is going to begin to rebuild the temple and the flock as we shall see later on as we continue through these prophecies and it becomes more and more specific to the church the further we get into them I don't want to get ahead of the story too much right now but to consider what is before us because this is the introduction of a transition as we shall see from just spiritual danger just spiritual overcoming there's a transition here to a physical danger that looms on the horizon as well and how to deal with it now we've been practicing now for decades in dealing with spiritual danger and in the last especially the last two decades we've had to deal with spiritual danger a great deal but there's a transition here whereby we're going to have to deal with two dangers the spiritual danger will never diminish but the physical dangers will increase alongside it we'll see that as we get into this a little bit deeper therefore the church needs a watchman it needs a stronghold Now, what does dominion mean? Hebrews, or in the the Hebrew language from Strong's, that's number 4475, Memshalah, which means rule, a realm, or a ruler. Dominion, government, power, and to rule. So he's saying here he's going to give a watchman, or the watchman, and the daughter of Zion, first rule, first dominion. First opportunity to rule. Now we as a church have to rule ourselves. That has to come first. We have to properly rule ourselves. And the church has not been being properly ruled for the last at least 13 years. And it began to slide somewhat before even Herbert Armstrong died. So he addresses that next. He says, now why do you cry out aloud? Why are we groaning and moaning out in pain? 
Is your there no king in you? Is your counselor perished? Or pains have taken you as a woman in travail? And that, I believe, is right where we are right now. Now, we need to understand some more, I think, about the daughter of Zion a little bit to, to fully comprehend what God is going to tell us here. Uh, I want to go back to Hebrews 12, first of all, and let's review this. We've gone over it several times in the last couple of years, but let's review it here for just a moment to understand what the church is today. Paul says, We're not come to Sinai above this, but down in verse 22, But you are come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God and to Jesus Christ, down in verse 24. So he puts a lot of analogies together here in just two verses to show us that back in the prophecies, when we read about Zion, when we read about Jerusalem, we are reading about the church. That's the analogy that Paul makes. So now, let's go back to... Uh, let's go to the book of Lamentations for just a few minutes here and see something about the daughter of Zion because we've used Lamentations now for quite some time to show that uh, the church is being scattered by God. But it talks a lot about the daughter of Zion here. So who is this daughter of Zion and what do we mean by it then when we talk about her uh, in the book of Micah and other places? Now I think that the daughter of Zion is that which came from Zion. Jesus Christ will rule from Zion and Zion was established in Jerusalem as the headquarters for the physical nations of Israel. So that which came forth from Zion is in that sense a daughter of Zion. The church today, the early New Testament church in that sense, was a daughter of Zion because it is that which came from Jerusalem, that which Christ had established there with ancient Israel and then raised to a spiritual level with the church. So the daughter of Zion is referring to the church. Now, the church is going to spread here in the book of Lamentations. Then we have daughters of Zion. But I believe that under Herbert Armstrong, since we had a unified one church, all of us together, that that was just one daughter. So the daughter of Zion refers, first of all, as a unified church before it began to come apart. It says, how does the city sit solitary that was full of people? She's become as a widow. The church is diminished all around us. She's gone into and dwells among the heathen, verse 3. Verse 4, the ways of Zion do mourn because none come to the solemn feast. Uh, it's gotten to where the Feast of Tabernacles has been, especially by worldwide, uh, almost done away with and hardly anybody comes now and it's an optional thing and around the world it's just getting where less and less is being made of God's Sabbath and His holy days. Her priests sigh, her virgins are afflicted, she's in bitterness. Verse 6, from the daughter of Zion all her beauty has departed. Her princes have become hearts that find no pasture. Uh, verse 8, Jerusalem has grievously sinned, therefore she is removed. All that honored her despise her because they have seen her nakedness. It's hard to describe who we are anymore. People say, well, I, I tell them I'm a minister, and they say, well, what church? Oh, boy. <laughs> well, I'm a branch. <laughs> Off of a branch. <laughs> Uh, how do you, do you, I always start. Do you know Herbert Armstrong? Oh, yeah, I heard of him. Yeah, I heard of his son, too. Uh, 
so you got something to explain there. And then, then I get it down to all, it all broke up, and some of us believe this way and some believe that way, and other branches all over the place, and I'm in one of them. It, it, it really is difficult. And I suppose the world has to sit and laugh to a great degree if they understand what has happened. Verse 10, middle of the verse. For she has seen that the heathen entered into her sanctuary, whom you did command that they should not enter your congregation. All her people sigh, they seek bread. Pretty good description of the church right now. Verse 17, Zion stretched forth her hands, and there is none to comfort her. Jerusalem is a menstruous woman among them. The Lord is righteous. Verse 18, for I have rebelled against his commandment. Here I pray you all people, and behold my sorrow. And on and on it goes. Verse chapter 2, How has the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger? And we have a cloud over us. Clouds of uncertainty. It looks like it can rain at any moment and often does. Sometimes it hails on us. Uh, verse 9 of chapter 2, second half. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. The leadership has gone totally Gentile. The law is no more. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. They, daughters, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground and keep silence. They don't know what to say. Chapter, verse 13. Uh, last half. O virgin daughter of Zion, your breach is great like the sea. Who can heal you? You need to be healed. The breaches are so great. No one knows how to go about this, do they? We talk about it sometimes. Well, how can we get the, the branches of the church back together? How can you heal these hurts between? Nobody's come up with a real good idea yet. Nobody can heal it. Verse 18, their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. See, the wall is full of breaches, holes, cracks. Let tears run down like a river day and night. Give yourself no rest. Let not the apple of your eye cease. Those of us who remain cannot let up because we may lose what we have left. Don't let the apple of God's eye cease. Don't go away completely. On and on it goes here. Um, Let's see, I'll go down to uh, verse 22 of chapter 4. Your punish, the punishment of your iniquity is accomplished, O daughter of Zion. He will no more carry away you into captivity. will visit your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, and discover your sins. So there's a point that this is going to turn around. God's going to bring it back and renew us as the days of old, as it says in the last verse of the book. So the daughter of Zion apparently applies to the whole church, including worldwide, as I said. While it was still unified... And then we see these cracks, these breaches, these, uh, this falling apart, the scattering that God has laid upon us. Now let's go to Isaiah, because Isaiah is a companion book with the book of Micah. They were written very close together in time, may have even been overlapped to somewhat, and you'll find the same theme back here that we find uh, in Micah. So he addresses Judah and Jerusalem here, doesn't introduce it to all Israel or all the church but just to Judah those who basically have split off from worldwide and become her daughters verse 8 the daughter of Zion is left as a cottage and a vineyard as a lodge and a garden of cucumbers as a besieged city it's like the church is just under siege from the devil except the Lord of hosts had left to us a very small remnant we should have been as Sodom and we should have been like Gomorrah so this thing is going to stop before it gets as bad as that. 
he is going to save a very small remnant of the church intact. He begins to describe some of the problems. Uh, Verse 18, uh, God says, Our sins be as scarlet, but they'll be white as snow. If you be, verse 19, willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured with the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. And when Herbert Armstrong warned us of Laodiceanism, we did not respond, and we have been put to the sword on a spiritual level, and have been decimated. Verse 21, how is the faithful city? Remember, the city of Jerusalem is uh, the city of Zion. This is the church, Hebrews 12, 22 and 3. How is the faithful city become an harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it. But now, murderers. Your princes are rebellious and companions of thieves, verse 23. Verse 27, Zion shall be redeemed. Now he talks about redeeming a remnant there in Micah that we've already read. We'll get back to and for converts with righteousness. Now here's a clue as to what we have to give birth to when we are in pain and travail, as we'll get back to in Micah 4. For converts with righteousness are they that return to her, of her with righteousness. Now what does Isaiah 2 say? Verse 2, It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. In the last days. He uses the same phraseology that Micah does. And he quotes Micah here in verse 4 about making peace and making all of our barbs and our spiritual threats and our innuendos and everything turn to peace instead of as arrows and spears. Now what does he say about the church here? Let's go down to uh, chapter 2. It's going to come to the place it's going to be so bad. Verse 4, I will give children to be their princes and babes shall rule over them. Spiritual children will be ruling. Women shall rule over them, it says a little further down in verse 12. So the churches themselves will dictate the rules. The congregations. They'll tell the ministry what to preach and what not to preach. They'll say, don't preach hard things to us, preach smooth, easy things to us, as Jeremiah and others say. And to keep their check, what will the ministry do? Exactly that. That's what's happening overall across the church today. Smooth and easy things are being taught. Don't worry. You're a Philadelphian. All those Laodiceans out there are the problem. Try to soothe the people. Try to keep them coming because they can be told that they're okay. Those are dangerous words, God says. Verse 14, The Lord will enter into judgment with the ancients of his people, the princes thereof. For you have eaten up the vineyard, the spoil of the poor is your houses. What mean you that you beat my people to pieces and grind the faces of the poor? Now let's notice verse 16, Moreover the Lord said, Because the daughters of Zion are haughty and walk with stretched forth necks. Now we've talked about uh, the women out here in the the nation of Israel and how they've got a feminine movement going on and uh, exalting themselves in business and this and that and we've condemned that over the years last 30-40 years that I've heard of as just the physical women of Israel well certainly it does apply but it applies to the churches as well see he addressed a small remnant the daughter of Zion once it's scattered now he talks about the daughters here he addresses them specifically those who break off and how they tend to be haughty and think they're Philadelphian and that they're okay 
and they make noises of looking good, spending a lot of time making themselves look good and patting themselves on the back because they are so Philadelphian. That is a very, very dangerous attitude for us to get into. Why not assume we're Philadelphian? I mean, not Philadelphian. Why not assume we're Laodicean, is the way I meant to say that? And repent and do the first works. So it says, because they're wanting to look good, we're getting bigger. We're on another station this month. We're doing fine. The ties are up. Trying to look good. Trying to dress themselves up. It's being successful. And yet I don't see too many people being called into God's church right now. I see a continuing of people running through the breaches and out of the field by themselves. That's what continues to go on. But they sure try to look good. We'd better be careful of that. Now he carries on. Chapter 4. And in that day, seven women shall take hold of one man, saying, We will eat our own bread, wear our own apparel. Let us be called by your name. Take you away our reproach, as my margin says. You take away our reproach. In other words, they need a leader. They need someone to bring them together and create unity and peace once more. And that day shall the branch of the Lord be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth shall be excellent and comely for them that are escaped of Israel. Some of us are going to escape this Laodicean quagmire that we found ourselves in. And if we do, then God is going to gather us. It shall come to pass that he that is left in Zion, and he that remains in Jerusalem shall be called holy, even every one that is written among the living in Jerusalem. Not dead, but alive. Spiritually alive here. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. And the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion and upon her assemblies a cloud and smoke by day and the shining of a flaming fire by night. And you can tie that in if you wish with Zechariah 2 where it talks about him being a wall of fire around Jerusalem which is an unwalled city that can't be talking about the world tomorrow in the new Jerusalem because it is a wall city with walls 144 cubit, cubits high so this is talking about something else we'll see more on that at some later time as we get to the book of Zechariah so I don't want to get too, head of the, too far ahead of the story here but the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3 I firmly believe all exist today they existed as a mail route they existed end to end successively through the generations up until today and we have probably dealt with Sardis as Herbert Armstrong came out of then we were Philadelphia and now the prevailing church is the last church Laodicea and it pervades the whole church but the attitudes of the other six are also still around and I can find the attitudes of each of them in me see the difference in the churches is not righteousness the difference is our problems it is our sins and our faults whereby Christ can identify us one from another. Now, when we repent and change and all become holy and righteous, then it will be one church again. One united, holy, latter temple. And he says, In that day shall seven women take hold of one man. There's a type of that back with Moses. Remember, the seven daughters came, and all seven took hold of him. He only married one, but all seven came. So when God raises up a branch which is a type of Christ, the Zerubbabel, as we'll see later on in uh, 
Haggai and Zechariah, he's going to raise up a branch who is a type of Christ. And all seven churches are going to take hold of that branch, that branch of the church, wherever he chooses to raise it up. He says in, uh, well, let's go back there just for a moment to Isaiah 48. A church can be a tree in prophecy. That's the symbolism over and over again. No, excuse me. I said 48. I meant 41. Chapter 41 of Isaiah. Verse 19. I will plant in the wilderness, and then he names seven trees, seven churches. Verse 20. That they may see and know and consider and understand together. Finally, when this remnant is put back together and all seven churches are planted here, this isn't talking about uh, a reforestation program in the millennium. Now, it may eventually be. But first of all, it's talking about trees. And pines and fir trees do not see and talk together and consider and understand together. So obviously the symbolism here is of churches so there is going to be a meeting of minds at some point when God assembles the remnant church in the wilderness they will all see and understand together and they will all seven take hold of one man as we saw back in Isaiah 4 so I'm not going to do it today for sake of time but chapter 5 gives you more detail and we've covered it before about the splitting of the vineyard and of the houses spiritual houses and so on Uh, but I want to to briefly review that from the standpoint that he, he moves forward here he talks about See, the time element is the same as Micah 4. He talks about the sins in the church. He talks about how he's going to draw the church back together, as he does in Micah 4. He's going to make a tower for the flock, and it's going to come together. And then he talks in chapter 8 about the Assyrian and a confederacy or a conspiracy against Israel and how that is coming on the land. And he says, don't, don't fret about it, don't worry about it, fear me, don't fear it. So, you see, the theme is the same in the book of Isaiah as it is in the book of Micah. We'll, uh, we'll head back there again now. Let's go back to Micah 4. You might put your ribbon or a bookmark or something or a pencil there. Keep your thumb there if you can stand it that long. So we talked about how we cry out and our counselor is gone. For pains have taken you as a woman in travail. Be in pain and labor to bring forth, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in travail. Now what does this mean? Let's go back to Isaiah 26. Hold your finger there if you want. Isaiah 26. And let's see. I'll pick it up in verse uh, 1. In that day shall this song be sung in the land of Judah. We have a strong city. Salvation will God appoint for walls and bulwarks. So the wall that has to be built in the church is a spiritual wall. Salvation is the wall ahead of us. Salvation is what has to be brought forth. Open the gates that the righteous nation which keeps the truth may enter in. Heal the breaches. Work toward salvation. And the righteous people which keep the truth will enter in. You will keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you because he trusts in you. What does he say about the latter temple in the book of Haggai? In this place will I bring peace. So we have to give birth to salvation. We have to give birth to peace. We have to continue to work in God's way. Verse 17. 
Like as a woman with child that draws near the time of her delivery is in pain and cries out in her pangs, so have we been in the sight in your sight, O Lord. We have been with child, we have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. All this pain we've been going through in the last thirteen years, we we see no end in sight, do we? It just continues to get worse and worse and worse. Now, what is the time element here? We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. So here we sit poised, the church coming apart. All of our efforts seem to bring forth wind, just like blowing through and does nothing. And the inhabitants of the earth have not yet fallen. So we're poised right here at this place where World War III is about to break out, the Assyrian is about to come into our land, and yet we don't seem to be getting anywhere as a church. So we are travailing to bring forth unity, harmony, peace. That's what peace is, unity and harmony. We're laboring to bring salvation, that is to be righteous, to be qualified for salvation, to cling to the truth. These are the things we realize that need to be done, but we're having trouble with them. Now let's go to Isaiah 9. Isaiah 9. There's more to this. Isaiah 9 and verse 6. For unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. We're familiar with with this very much in the uh, Handel's Messiah. And the government will be on his shoulder forever and ever. So it's speaking of Christ, who is born unto us. Now there's a clue for you. We are supposed to be giving birth to Jesus Christ. He was first born to us, wasn't he? He came on this earth, was born of the Virgin Mary, and he was born unto us. Now, he must be born through us. This is the birth process that we're going through right now. Let's see that proved back in Galatians. To me, I find this, this is exciting. Galatians 4. Galatians 4. Paul uses this very same analogy. Now I can't get back to Galatians. Galatians 4, verse 19. My little children, of whom I travail in birth, again until Christ be formed in you. That is the birth that we are travailing in. We have to be begotten of God's Spirit and Christ has to be formed in us so that we think the thoughts of Christ, we act like Christ, we do like Christ, then the world can see Christ in us, can't they? So he was born first to us, walked the earth and set an example for us, told us to do as he did, and now we have to give birth to Christ, to his holiness, to his righteousness. That's what we're laboring to bring forth, is the righteousness and holiness of Jesus Christ. That is the light that has to be set on a hill that the whole world can see. We have a big job ahead of us. No wonder we're in pain and in travail. Because what did we bring forth in the last years of worldwide before it broke up and right after Herbert Armstrong died? We brought forth Laodiceanism, laxness, eh, so whatness, began to ease up on keeping the Sabbath, went to the beach for the wrong day, time, or for the wrong purpose, to party, and to go to country music, and to go to this, and to go to that, but not to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, with all our hearts. 
So God blew us apart. He says, you're not bringing forth righteousness. This isn't Christ being formed in you. This is selfishness being formed in you. Now go be in pain and give birth to holiness. Give birth to righteousness. And Paul says that's exactly what we're doing. We're going to see this emphasized uh, just down the road here a little bit. So really there are two things being born in us. Twins. The first is for the holiness and righteousness of Jesus Christ because we can't be of any use to him against this world until we have reached the level of holiness and righteousness where he's not ashamed for us to represent him. I think he's ashamed to use the church today to represent him. He sent Herbert Armstrong all over the world to enter to to represent God. But now because of our Laodiceanism and our sins and our lack of unity and the fighting and the war that goes on between us, how can we be used as representatives of Jesus Christ as a light to the world? We can't. So we have to give birth to that child first. But what we're talking about here in Micah 4 is the rebirth of the church, the beginning of the building of the new temple, which we'll get to in the book of Hag- books of Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. So we have to give birth to that too. We have to be given first dominion. You see, we don't have a, a leader and a counselor now. But he is going to appoint the two witnesses to lead us. And he says that he will stir them up and he will stir the remnant of the people up and they will come and they will work and they will build the temple. And in that temple, he says, I will bring peace. He says to gather pieces of wood there in the first part of Haggai and build a temple. What is a piece of wood? Well, let's see. Part of a tree. A tree is a church. And as the trees are cut down, and when you cut a tree down in the woods, it isn't a tree anymore. It's pieces of wood. You can cut it up for lumber. You can cut it up for firewood. That's an analogy we could carry right on through with the church. But he says, out of these trees that are falling down, they are to go and gather wood and build the church. So a church has to be rebuilt. And that's what Micah is introducing to us here. Is that God will give first dominion, but that we have to bring forth righteousness and holiness. Otherwise, we can't be included in the latter temple because he says... It will have greater glory than that which came before. You see, under Herbert Armstrong, many people were called. That was his job, to call many, to restore truth. But there were a lot of tares that Satan sowed in that church. There were a lot of different ones with wrong attitudes, unconverted, some that fell among thorns, some that fell in the rocks, this and that and the other thing. But out of all those that he called, now he is sifting and sorting and choosing those who have produced fruits those that he can include in a temple that will have greater glory because the rebels will be purged out as Isaiah says all must pass under the rod as he said in another place so we will be checked for plumbness for uprightness by straightness or for straightness and verticality by the two witnesses as it says there in uh, Revelation 11 and other places and we will not be allowed to be there unless we've brought forth holiness and righteousness so we're really under the gun right now to change what we were in worldwide and become what God wants us to be so that when he gives that church, that latter temple, dominion under the two witnesses, we can be a viable part of it and be part of a good example before the world. Now we have a work to do before the world when this happens. I say we because I hope I'm there and I hope you're there. 
I don't mean us exclusively. I mean the remnant that God drags in from all over the church wherever holiness and righteousness can be found. And it is amazing to me to consider these scriptures and realize that even when the two witnesses appear on the scene, only a remnant will recognize them and respond. Only those who have waked up and become spiritually tuned will respond. Now you would think something as big as that ultimately will become, and we'll see that here very shortly, will be denied the bulk of the church. Scary business to realize how far we have fallen. Now I'm running short on time here, so I'm going to cut on through some of this. Um, Isaiah 127 we already read, which says we will be redeemed in righteousness. Righteousness is the precursor, the forerunner, to being a part of the latter temple. We have to attain a certain level. Isaiah 37, um, he says there, well, let's, let's go back very quickly to that one. Isaiah 37, I don't want to skip that entirely. Don't spend much time back here. But this is talking about the time of trouble. Verse 3, a day of trouble and of rebuke and blasphemy for the children to come to the birth and there is not strength to bring forth. It, it seems that's sort of where we are right now. We've come to this point where God perhaps is almost ready to begin putting the former temple together out of the shambles of, I mean the latter temple out of the shambles of the former. And we are so weak and so lacking strength spiritually that we're trying to push and nothing much is happening. Now isn't this the way you feel? I feel that way. Sometimes I, I pray and I want to study and I want to get in and, and do. And yet I, I have such a fight with my human nature. I don't have strength to bring forth righteousness. And it's scary. But it's not going to remain that way. He's talking here again about the time when the Assyrian comes upon us. Verse 18. Of a truth, Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations in their countries. So this is going to be World War III. Verse 20, Now therefore, the Lord our God, save us from his hand, that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you are the Lord, even you only. He tells us in Jeremiah 23 that the deliverance is going to be such that Egypt will not be remembered. Verse 22, This is the word which the Lord has spoken concerning him. The virgin, the daughter of Zion, has despised you and laughed you to scorn. The daughter of Jerusalem has shaken her head at you. Now this is a very interesting passage. When the Assyrian comes and starts destroying nations, it says that the church is going to despise and laugh at the Assyrian. Now, how could that be? Let's go back to Micah again. Micah 4. He tells us to be in pain, bring forth righteousness, be in travail, for now shall you go forth out of the city, you shall dwell in the field... I won't comment a great deal on this. There is more about it specifically as we get further into these prophecies and we'll address it later on. Uh, I don't think we should all move into the nearest cornfield and pitch a tent right at this moment. But there is some instruction here which will be considered and analyzed as we get more and more into the scriptures. There you shall be delivered. There the Lord shall redeem you from the hand of your enemies. But notice he says, you shall go even to Babylon. Now, virtually everywhere we read about Babylon, it says, come out of her, my people. Get out of the midst of her. Here he says, get away from the city or the greatest intensity of Babylon and dwell in the field. Go to Babylon. Well, now, why would the church go to Babylon? Not spiritually speaking. This has to be 
in other in some other way because we're not supposed to go to Babylon ever spiritually and we're not going into captivity there we're just now coming out of the captivity of this world about 70 years now more or less we've had the church in this modern era and Zechariah 1 indicates after 70 years I think that we'll be delivered from that the yoke broken off our neck so why would we go to Babylon I think the context here is the key to this let's see what it says now verse 11 many peoples or nations are gathered against you who the daughter of Zion against the church that say let her be defiled and let our eye look down upon Zion but they don't know God they don't know his counsel and he tells the church the daughter of Zion verse 13 arise and thresh O daughter of Zion he makes the church's horn iron he will make our hooves as brass and we will beat in pieces many people have we considered this before? We thought we were just at the first sign of trouble going to get a phone call and run off to a place of safety. And we've understood this to some degree, but I don't think we've really grasped it before. Gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops, he says. The commentaries say that this is talking to Judah to gather herself together for protection, and we need to gather for spiritual protection. Iron sharpens iron. Uh, we're not supposed to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. So much the more as the end draws near. We need to be gathered together for protection spiritually. And this is eventually going to come down to a physical thing. But he talks then about the church, verse 5. Uh, he's speaking of Christ, first of all, who is our protection, obviously. But then he's going to have a type of Christ in Zerubbabel of the two witnesses. This man shall be the peace when the Assyrians shall come into our land. The church has to be put back together in unity and harmony and peace, Haggai says. So Christ through... Christ's type will bring peace in the church when the Assyrian comes in the land. Now notice, he'll tread in our palaces. Then shall we raise against him seven shepherds and eight principal men. Not just two witnesses. Now the commentaries say seven is a number of perfection. It means a few. And when he adds eight, it means quite a number of men. It may mean seven or eight, or it may mean 15 if you add them together, or the commentaries may be right. But quite a number of men will rise up against the Assyrian. But let's tie this together by going back to Revelation 12. And we're going to see what we've been talking about come together here uh, in Revelation 12. <coughs> we just finished <coughs> chapter 10, verse 11. He said to me, You must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. Who's you? Well, he was speaking to John. Who was John? John was the last living apostle. John represented the church at that point as the leader of the remnant of the church that was left. So he's speaking to the church here. Then he addresses the two witnesses and how they will go against this world. They will not be able to be harmed. They will give plagues whensoever and wheresoever and howsoever they wish. They can stop the rain for three and a half years as Elijah did. Their enemies cannot kill them. Our fire will proceed out of their mouths and destroy their enemies. You talk about rising and threshing. This is a confrontation of the church against the world, against the beast. Now, specifically with the two witnesses, it's talking about the three and a half years when the church is in safety. But just prior to that, the church is persecuted before she goes to a place of safety. Now, let's pick this up in Revelation 12, because we've just described two witnesses and what happens there. There appeared a great wonder in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and upon her head a crown of twelve stars, twelve apostles, 
12 tribes of Israel. This woman represents all of Israel. And she, and it's talking about the church here, a woman in the church, she being with child, cried, travailing in birth and pain to be delivered. And there appeared another wonder in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon, having seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns upon his heads. Or his head. Uh, yeah, his heads. He had lots of heads. And his tail drew the third part of the stars of heaven, and it cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman, which was ready to be delivered, for to devour her child as soon as it was born. So Christ is being formed in us. We are to give birth to Christ. Just as he came to us, we are to come to him. And she brought forth a man-child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. So it's obviously talking about Jesus Christ. But he came to us. Now we are to give birth to him. Paul made that very clear. That we are to have his character formed into us. And she's, and the dragon is just waiting, brethren. As soon as he sees us bring forth Christ, he is going to attack us. Once he sees the church beginning, a remnant of the church coming together under the two witnesses, the Zechariah 3 and 4 show, they are over all seven of the candles. When he sees that happen, he is going to be so angry, he's going to just wait because he knows that God is going to start his government over again. And first dominion will come to the church, to the first fruits. And she has to run for it. And he talks about that. But then he goes on down here and says Satan will be cast down, verse 8, and, and he prevails not against God and is cast down. Neither was their place found anymore in heaven. So once the church begins to come together, before the tribulation starts and starts bringing forth righteousness and peace and the Holy Spirit, Satan is going to come after us. He has been the accuser of the brethren, verse 10. Accused them before our God day and night, but no more. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the forgiveness, by the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives to the death. So this is a fight, a struggle to the death. For some, there will be martyrs. Rejoice, you heavens, and you that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and seek. For the devil has come down having great wrath because he knows he has but a short time. Now notice the church. And when the dragon saw that he was cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman which brought forth the man-child. Now the book of Revelation does not tell us how long he persecutes the woman. But at some point she's given wings and flies into the wilderness. Well, that reminds you that not of Matthew 24. I got into this to some degree in the introduction of this uh, series uh, on Micah specifically. In the introduction, uh, we talked about Matthew 24, but since he referred us to that, let's go back there for a moment. Matthew 24, he talks about all these wars and rumors of wars coming. We're very familiar. Nation rising against nation. Famines, pestilences, earthquakes in different places. We're seeing all those things happen right now. So now is now. Now is right now. Verse 9. Then, after these sorrows, shall they deliver you, the church, up to the afflicted, and shall kill you, and you shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. And then shall many be offended, and shall betray one another, and shall hate one another. And false prophets shall rise, and shall deceive many. And iniquity will abound. The love of many will wax cold as a result. But he that endures to the end shall be saved. 
The gospel does not need to be preached right now. We need to find Christ who is minding the sheep and take care of righteousness and holiness and give birth to that because that is what we are looking forward to. But after all these sorrows and after they kill and persecute and people betray one another, then shall the gospel be preached. By whom? By those who are left to do it, the two witnesses. Not by us today. And the church will flee to the mountains at that point. But we have to rise in flesh. We have to stand before this world and withstand whatever Satan throws at us. Notice Daniel 11. I want to get, tie that in here quickly. We mentioned it in that other sermon as well. But in this context, I want us to consider it again. He's talking about the beast power here, speaking lies, and he'll be against the holy covenant, verse 28, and he shall do exploits and return to his own land. But then he's going to come. And those who forsake the holy covenant, in verse 30, end of it, are going to have intelligence with him. So I think, brethren, the worldwide who has left the covenant of God and who has joined the council of churches and the evangelical movement is going to have intelligence with the beast. They're going to give them your name and my name and they're going to come after us. And they'll pollute the sanctuary of strength, verse 31, and shall take away the daily sacrifice, and they shall place the abomination that makes desolate. And that's the, the sign to flee. But notice what has happened in the meantime. And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. So God's people are going to do miracles and exploits and they are going to rise and thresh before the Assyrian and the Assyrian cannot touch the church except to kill some. <laughs> I mean, he can't destroy the church is what I'm trying to say. Some will be martyred. All will be persecuted. Why do we think that we get off easy when our forefathers were martyred? Just why? Who do we think we are? Are we so great that God would not bring some of this on us if others have had to suffer it? Do we really think we're that much better than them? That we don't have a common fate ahead of us? Some will die. They'll fall by the sword and by flame and by captivity and by spoil many days. Now when they shall fall, they shall be helped with a little help Many shall cleave to them with flatteries, and some of them of understanding shall fall to try them and to purge and to make them white even to the time of the end because it is yet for a time appointed. Now, I think that's basically referring to the tribulation. The church will flee before we're all killed. I mean, God will only allow the persecution, martyrdom, to go a certain point, and then he's going to give us wings of an eagle to fly out of there from the persecution of the devil. But some of them who do understand even, who still follow the covenant but are still lackadaisical, are going to be left behind in the tribulation. And they'll fall, they'll be tried, they'll be purged and made white in tribulation. Now, if we purge ourselves and bring forth holiness and righteousness ahead of time, we can be a part of that remnant church that isn't persecuted, I mean, will be persecuted, but doesn't go into the tribulation, but is given the wings of an eagle to fly away. Now, I want to go, uh, let's close this now, in Isaiah. But there is a confrontation coming, I think Micah is telling us, between the church and the world. And he is going to give us power. 
and there will be miracles, and there will be exploits done. Some will die, but then God is going to take the church out of it. Did not Moses and Aaron have to stand before all Egypt? Did they not have to make Pharaoh's snakes get eaten up by their snakes? Didn't the apostles have to face the world and the hardest thing that they could throw at them? Why should we get off easier? We're the end. We have to be the shining light example on the hill. Let's go to Isaiah 66 now. Verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord, you that tremble at his word. Now who does God look to? First part of the verse. To him that is contrite. To him that trembles at his word. Now he's going to start rebuilding the church. He is going to bring forth a church conceived in holiness and righteousness and born with the character of Christ. So he tells us who he's looking for at this end time. Just as these things start to happen, this is whom I will look to. Hear the word of the Lord, verse 5, you that tremble at his word, your brethren that hated you, that cast you out for my name's sake, sounds like Matthew 24, and said, let the Lord be glorified. Praise the Lord, they're saying in worldwide now. Cast us out. But he shall appear to your joy, and they shall be ashamed. A voice of noise from the city, a voice from the temple, a voice of the Lord that renders recompense to his enemies. Before she travailed, she brought forth. Before her pain came, she was delivered of a man-child. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall the earth be made to bring forth in one day? Or shall a nation be born at once? For as soon as Zion travailed, she brought forth her children. I find this so very, very encouraging. That we're entering into this pain, and when the deliverance comes, it's going to seem overall, in a sense, so quick as if it never happened. I know that's hard for us to imagine right now, but this is going to be a short labor. We need to make it an intense labor. But be in pain, Micah said. Be in sorrow. Work hard. Push. Become holy and righteous. Let Christ be formed in you. And the joy is going to be so great that it will seem like there was no pain there, that it happened just as soon as we started. Shall I bring to the birth and not cause to bring forth, says the Lord? Shall I cause to bring forth and shut the womb, says the Lord? Rejoice you with Jerusalem and be glad with her, all you that love her. Rejoice for joy with her, all you that mourn for her. For God is going to deliver us out of this. We're going to rise and thresh against the world. And some of us will be killed and persecuted. The church will flee. And then the witnesses are going to turn against the world with a confrontation such as has never occurred on this earth before and bring plagues all over the earth and stop the rain and burn people to cinders with the word of their mouth and perhaps even physical fire to kill their enemies when they confront them. When he says, rise and thresh, O Zion, he's not talking some little thing in a corner. This is a worldwide deal. Because the church has to sit on a hill and show the power and the strength and the might and the righteousness and the holiness of Jesus Christ. He was born to us. He went through pain and agony and beating and died for us. Now we, in turn, have an obligation 
to give birth to him and our character and our lives to produce that kind of holiness that kind of righteousness if we do he promises we will give birth to a new era to a new dominion to a new rule that will never ever fade out from the time that he returns then at the end of this we're, we're beginning it now I hope very soon and when it all ends well it'll never end the government and his his government will increase forever and forever so we have some tough times ahead of us but once it's done we can look back and say that wasn't so bad after all